Hello and welcome to Talk of the Hound. I'm your host, Wes Braver. Today my guest is Chloe Treat. She's a New York-based director and choreographer. Some of her credits include associate choreographer of Broadway's Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 and Heisenberg. Chloe also choreographed Revolution of Steve Jobs at the Santa Fe Opera and the American premiere of a Philip Glass opera called The Perfect American. She recently directed productions of Cabaret, James, Joyce, James Joyce's The Dead, and two workshops of a new musical called The Wave at Indiana University. I'm here with Chloe Treat, one of my good friends. I have to, for reasons of journalistic integrity, disclose that Chloe is uh, not only an amazing director and choreographer, but she also is the director of uh, one, uh, my musical, <laughs> Medusa. Um, which we might get into, might not, we'll see. We're mostly here to talk about you, Chloe. But, oh, um, cool. you know, if I seem familiar for you listeners, it's because <laughs> we are. Usually my interviews are people who I'm meeting for the first time ever. So it's, it's like very exciting to me to talk to somebody who I actually already know. Um, Chloe, I want to start by reading your bio to our friends at home. Oh, <laughs> Your bio is actually the thing that made me want to work with you in the first place. The, the director bio is the kind of thing that you like put on your website. And most people, it's very bland, obviously. It's very just like run through the credits, which is fine. It gets the job done. But I just want to read Chloe's because the flavor is, is great. Chloe Treat is a New York-based director and choreographer born and raised in the great, if not occasionally problematic, state of Texas. She directs and choreographs big-ass musicals. Hire her to do any show with a dream ballet, a musical with a hundred people that only has two weeks to rehearse, or if you're doing Seven Brides for Seven Brothers because she really wants to do that one. Some of the things that she cares about in no particular order are improving the representation of women on stage and in creative teams, democratizing storytelling, Pina Bausch, using the theater as a center for community and dialogue, golden age musicals, Tennessee Williams, and Westerns. It's just amazing. I read it and I was like, oh, she's like a real person. You know, it's, it's like very important to to get that out there. Thank you. I'm so glad you appreciate it. I remember that I made that shift kind of right before we met because I too had a more credit heavy, um, I'm not even sure it was more credit heavy, but it was more like talking about my work in a kind of academic, uh, it just felt pretentious. And I was like, fuck it. This is how I actually feel. And then I immediately got really good feedback from it, which was that you brought me onto your show, which I love. So, <laughs> so far, so good. I, I do also submit it to like, I choreographed an opera at Santa Fe Opera. And like, that's what I put in the program. It's the only bio I have. So it's, it's some people, I think people have strong reactions to it. Yeah. But I'm okay yeah. with that. I, I think I think for the younger generation, we we really appreciate just going for it, and I uh, I think it's great for finding jobs and stuff because the the people who are reading this that matter, you know, like everyone matters, but like the people who you're really writing this for are the people who you want to hire you. So saying hire me is is a I think a strategic thing to throw in there. Um, all right, I want to do normally like interviewers do the turbo round at the end, but I want to try doing it at the beginning. So we oh, have some to go. Okay. So are you ready? Shake it out. No, <laughs> no, but I'll try. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, just very quick answers. Don't think about it. Don't use your brain. Use your gut. Okay. Here we go. Favorite Broadway theater? The Imperial. Oh, yeah. 
favorite musical? Um, the Music Man. Favorite cast album? Um, Le Miserable. It's the one I grew up on. Favorite. It was my intro. Yeah, yeah. Favorite straight play? Uh, I'm really freezing because I have complicated feelings about straight plays. Um, okay, I'm gonna go like old school theater studies and say streetcar. Nice. Actor who would play you in the stage adaptation of your life? I wanna say Grace McLean, but it's probably not true. But we should just all um, aspire to that, I think. Amazing. For, for our listeners, Grace McLean is an actor who was in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet. She was also uh, created and starred in In the Green at Lincoln Center Theater last year, which is one of my favorite shows recently. One production you would go back in time to see. Um, uh, oh, I'm not good at this, Wes, the fastness thing. You were, okay. you were doing really well. Don't get tripped up. Just Just Fine. go for it. I mean, I feel like I would want to see like South Pacific. I'm such a sucker for like golden age musicals. That's great. That's great. What was the last show you saw before quarantine? Um, a production of Wild Party that I directed. <laughs> <laughs> the, a, a more legit one than that. Was I this? I can't remember. Was this Lippa or uh, Lippa? Um, it's named the Wild Party One by Andrew Lippa, which went up off Broadway at the Manhattan Theater Club, and One by Michael John Lacusa, which opened on Broadway at the Virginia Theater. That one directed by George C. Wolfe. I I spent my like six months leading up to quarantine doing all shows at BFA programs, which was like rehearsed every night, and so my I did not see. Theater. Like I could only catch Wednesday matinees for like six months. Yeah. Um, so I think the last thing I saw was something like Bands Visit. I don't know. It's, it was a long time since I'd seen a non-show um, that I was working on show. Do you have a favorite dance sequence in a musical? The dance break from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the film mm. version, mm. the barn dance. Amazing. <laughs> Dinner with one theater artist, living or dead. I feel like it just wouldn't be a theater artist. <laughs> I would love to get, not like nothing against theater artists. I would love to get dinner with Nina Bausch, who is, she's a theatrical artist. Oh, definitely. Dance theater. Yeah. Dance, okay. dance theater. Great. Pina, amazing. If you could have directed the premiere of one show, what would it be? My brain is saying South Pacific. That's so weird. <laughs> but I don't know. Let's just go with, you know, it's what I really, really want to do because it's, problematic is carousel oh yeah yeah would you have drawn i think there's like really an argument for does that need is that a show that needs to be retired um but i really want to do it interesting would you have dramaturged it with oscar hammerstein and like tried to be like well what if um you know we we deal with some of this stuff (laughs) what would have been your strategy there I feel like it's a show that is trying to, so I think that South Pacific is a, is a show that um, is like tackling racism pretty successfully for the moment that it's written in. Um, and like, you've got to be carefully taught feels, like I, I know there are a lot of racial depictions in that show that don't 
hold water and, and shouldn't, but it feels like they're like really contending with that issue. I feel like in Carousel, we're like, should we be women? But then don't kind of <laughs> like really talk about it. Like it's there. Yeah. Um, toxic masculinity is there. Generational trauma is there. But um, it, it, to me, it doesn't really come to any kind of satisfying conclusion. I think it can with direction. Um, but did you see the most recent Broadway one? I did. No, I didn't get to see that. But I was a little bit like it was sort of a protest to not going because it's one of my all time favorite shows. But I was like, why now? If you're not going to explode it and get into it, you know, why you now? You have to explode it. You have to explode it. I mean, this is one of my big heartbreaks about being a theater director. I, there's a company, I know I'm, I'm getting off, off topic, but there's a company that I work with a lot um, called Heartbeat Opera. New York Times describes the Heartbeat Opera Company as streamlining and rearranging canonical works, both musically and dramatically, paring them down to their concentrated cores and stripping away centuries of expectations and tradition. The whole thing that they do is they do the rep, but they completely blow it apart. And, you know, I think the, the closest thing we have to that recently is maybe this production of Oklahoma, kind of, right? Uh, the Fish production, no. but in opera because it's all public domain there just there aren't property it's nobody's property you can just do whatever you want to do to it and obviously like some people are going to do tacky horrible versions of stuff but heartbeat has such integrity and is really story first and like finds ways to complicate and layer and expose these traditional the kind of um, canon pieces in a way that I like that is my dream job as a director. I don't know if it's possible because it's just not how rights work yeah. in our industry. Yeah. So I wonder if those things will like, will some of those Rogers and Hammerstein shows like pass into public domain? I feel like it's, it's either 70 or 90 years. And I wonder if you point. can start like really messing with it soon ish. 1945. What what is math? That would be like <laughs> in the in the next two decades. I think those yeah. might pass into public domain. That would be interesting. I don't know though. Can you extend public domain? You might I, be I able to. I mean, Disney's been doing that with their properties for a while now, and they le literally lobby the government to change copyright laws so that they can keep like Mickey Mouse in their domain because he was made in like the 30s, and it's like it keeps coming up, and they keep being like, "We won't have a company if you let our things pass into." Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just always think about the most recent Fiddler, something dramatic just fell in my house, um, uh, where just the choice of that, like, life vest at the end was apparently super... Oh, tell us about this. Um, well, I probably, I, you know, fact check me because I'm doing this off <laughs> memory, but... Um, so at the end of Fiddler, they, the Jewish colony in Russia is displaced. And um, I think that was Bartlett Sher directed that production, I believe. Chloe's right. It was Bartlett Sher's 2015 Broadway revival of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, there was a choice. This was really when uh, the Syrian refugee crisis was like at its peak. Um, oh. And so there was a, and, and you were just seeing images all the time of people in washing up in Greece and those no. like orange life vests, right? So there was a choice made truly in the last 30 seconds of the show um, that as 
they are packing up and leaving their village in Russia in the leaving sequence, I think just Tevia puts on a vest. So there's just this nod um, Hmm. to imagery about just how displacement is something that continues to happen and the communities look different, but this story is contemporary. I, and again, so this is like a fact check me, (laughs) but I think what I was hearing about it at the time was like, oh, and shit, the end. And to me, it felt like the, as the idea being that there was some kind of really large thing that pushed against the text. And to me, that fits like quite sound. Yeah, that feels like ex- extremely unified with what they were going for. In- and, and like a small choice, all things considered. And yeah. my, my memory of this, though, again, fact check me is that they had problems with that choice and the um and the property um and so i always think like if that is going to be that's a problem yeah yeah and then my one of my dear friends did a music man production that got a cease and desist and was shut down um for making bold directing choices um so know it's a it's something that i i really think in terms of bringing you know i think there is a um, a school of thoughts which is like the canon it's it's all male it's all white like we just need to move away from the canon we don't need to keep doing those shows um and i really understand that school that's not the school i'm in i'm i tend to be uh in like let's explode these things open but I think we can't really do that. Um, and so then it's tricky. Yeah, if you can't legally explore it. All right, I wanna take it back a little bit because okay. what I really wanna do is, is get to know you and how you came to New York in the first place, how you got into theater in the first place. Um, and I'll start with sharing just a little anecdote thing I know about you, which is okay. when we were rehearsing for Medusa, you, you know, you have the, the tables set up where the directors and the creative team sit behind the tables and then the actors sit on the other side, you're rehearsing. And on your little table, these are, these are like, you don't get a desk. This is like for a week. This isn't like a permanent thing. But I remember you brought a picture of yourself as like, I don't know, maybe a an eight-year-old girl or something. Yeah. Uh, and y- you, you tell the rest. I just love that image. Oh, you have it there. That's amazing. I have it always. This is myself in second grade. Look at her. They can't see. They can't. This will be audio. Oh, they can't see. This will be audio. Okay. Well, this is what I looked like in second grade. Um, oh, my, my second grade picture story. Okay, so I, uh, you know, at the beginning of my career, which I always feel weird saying because I think I'm still there. You know, I, I don't know. It's always kind of hard to, like, categorize. Nothing sucks more than being like, are you an early, mid-career? Where are you? Emerging. I'm emerging. emerging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when I first started working out of school, um, I had a ton of really, really uh, amazing opportunities that I'm super grateful for. And I also had a lot of really toxic work environments and experiences, which I think is a pretty standard um, experience in the arts, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think because it is an industry where there isn't always a lot of money, 
um, people who have like youth and energy and are willing to kind of go the extra mile. Um, they're kind of, there can be competing um, interests to both, you know, kind of utilize and take advantage of that on the one hand and then on the other hand feel like there's scarcity and so wanting to kind of keep people in their places and um without needing to say much more there there were just a few I had a few shows that I that really um took it out of me and I felt like some of the behavior that happened in those rooms were things that I really disagreed with um and were things that if i got to be in the position of power and i and i do think that the director is the person who is fundamentally setting the tone of the room um i i take that responsibility really seriously and of course i can't be held responsible for everyone's behavior but in terms of how the how the room feels um and how people are treated I take that really seriously and I want people to feel uh, like my room is fundamentally kind um, and a pleasant place to be. And so my, so after I came out of my tra traumatic experiences, um, I had seen, you know, we pick up, we pick up the behavior that is modeled around us a lot of the time. And I had seen myself be in a few work situations where I had taken stress out or my own shortcomings or my own failure or my own, my idea isn't working out on somebody else in the room. And I think the way that happens, it's usually someone below you in the room, which is just like a shitty, shitty quality to have, I think. Um, and I was like, fuck that. I don't want that to be how I handle stress and failure. And I don't want that behavior to be in my room. And so my second grade self holds my 30 year old self accountable for that behavior. And I feel like my second grade self is super, uh, or that picture of me, I feel like I'm looks really confident in myself in a way that I think when you feel confident and secure, you don't take shit out on other people. So that's, um, that's what my second grade picture means to me. It's like what the constitution means to me. Yeah. That's what my second grade picture means to me. And so I always put it on my work space where in whatever rehearsal room I'm in to remind me of the kind of behavior I expect from myself. I love that. For some reason, I interpreted it as, and maybe that it is also this, but like, you know, the spirit of play and, you know, you, from your inner child. Hate play. No. But, but I like more that it's almost more of an admonishing, like, portrait on the wall to just remind you, like, Chloe, be nice. It's like, it's Chloe be nice. It's also, and I, this is so like sappy, but it's true. I have my dream job. Like, my, the job that I get to do is, what I is what second grade Chloe dreamed that she got to do and I I at least have been in a place where there is something frustrating at work and you just blow it out of proportion and you're like this isn't worth it fuck it this is miserable um and second grade Chloe is there to keep me humble and to remind me that I get to do what I love to do and so yeah she, she's like a 
She's like an evil eye against negativity. <laughs> did, uh, did you really want to be a director, specifically a director in second grade? No, I think I wanted to play Fontaine on Broadway um, <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think I know that that's what I wanted to do. Um, no, I, but I loved theater. My grandfather was a director. Um, my grandfather was a, was born in 1919 in Senton, Texas, which is like a tiny, tiny ass town in Southern, Southern Texas. Um, and he grew up loving the movies, loving theater. He eventually moved to New York and he went to the actor's studio and studied under Martha Graham and Sanford Meisner. Um, so even though he's from a little town in Texas, he like spoke with a quasi British accent his whole life. Just he just spoke with a dramatic accent. Um, and he did not end up doing the New York thing, but he, uh, he came back to San Antonio and was like a theater celebrity in San Antonio, which I will say it's a very small pool, but he really enjoyed his status as big fish in small pond. He spoke with a mid-Atlantic bizarre accent um and he uh like directed a ton of local local theater community theater high school theater just all that kind of stuff so I grew up really around especially golden age kind of things because that's really what he loved um and then I grew up dancing um and so I danced in a lot of uh dance ensembles for musicals and then the directing thing came about um i mean my parents and siblings like to give me a hard time because i i was a just i'm a firstborn i have three younger siblings i was always very bossy and i directed my siblings and things since always um my favorite example of that is i directed my sister in an easter pageant where i made her be jesus and crucified her <laughs> <laughs> Were you mad at her? For always. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I definitely was like constantly putting on shows about the house. That was very much in my um, in my uh, vocabulary. Uh, but then when I went to theater school in college, kind of thinking I was going to be an actor. But I, I honestly think, you know, I think most people who work in theater start with acting and then specify. I think that's true. You know, I don't think stage managers are seven for the most part and are like, I can't wait to stage manage. You like fall in love with the medium and then you figure out where you fit in. <laughs> um, and Rachel Chavkin was my freshman directing teacher. And um, Rachel Chavkin, by the way, just popping in here to say she directed Hades Town, the most recent, um, or was it the most recent winner of the Tony? Of the of she best won the Tony. Did it win the Tony? I think it did. I, it definitely won Tony for Best Musical. Um, and also Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. Um, okay, yes, she was your directing professor. And it just, a bunch of things clicked into place. It was like the medium that I loved working in and a role that um, I really loved. I, I like storytelling from this position much more than I like storytelling from the acting position um yeah did you try writing or anything or any other positions and sort of feel it out yeah i i did write and i i do write i actually like one of the big things that um has come out in quarantine writing is a medium that i super super love and i want to find a way 
for that to be a bigger part of my life. I just don't write theater. Um, so in terms of, I, I, I hope that I can actually figure out more ways to incorporate writing in my life, but I'm not a playwright. And talk to me about the dance stuff, because you seem to be like very actively a dancer. Was it a conscious decision to, I mean, you've stayed pretty much, you're still doing both directing and choreography a lot in your career. Um, did you decide that you were definitely going to do both or did it just those gigs were coming? No. So what happened, um, so I grew up very much as a dancer, um, you know, not, I, I kind of always struggle how to label myself because I have many really serious dancers in my life and I don't want to <laughs> insult them by saying that I was too because um, I was by no means the caliber of dancer of many of the people in my life. But I danced through high school. I went to a performing arts high school as a dance major. Um, it was something that I did a lot of. Um, and then uh, I, I honestly kind of can't fully remember why I went why in the high school college transition I decided theater not dance like I had had some injuries I knew I wasn't going to be a professional dancer the the move to just major in theater in retrospect feels a little bit random but I don't know maybe it wasn't um <laughs> but anyway so I I really just dropped dance and went to theater school and loved directing um and then when I graduated, um, I actually, uh, one of the very first professional connections that I made was with Sam Pinkleton, who is um, also an amazing director, choreographer, does both, but works more as a choreographer. Sam Pinkleton is best known for choreographing Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. He's also co-director of The Dance Cartel, a New York-based performance art dance collective and we also did Percy Jackson and the lightning thief together we did Heisenberg together we did uh, we did like 14 shows and workshops at the end of the day but um we were introduced and I actually came to choreography because I think it's a really natural combination of the skills of directing and dance um so it is you know if I think like choreography is to dance as um, direction is to acting. And so I had the directing skills, which was like the macro storytelling. And then I had the ability to generate internally as a dancer. Um, choreography was actually the third place, not the transition, which I think most people mm. think that it was. Um, I do not, I have not kept up with my dancing at all. Um, and I genuinely feel like the reason I do like to still do both. And the reason I like that is I feel like with exceptions, certainly um, when you're doing a musical, I really love for it to feel like there's a cohesive hand voice. Um, and I really don't like when you can see the seams. And I think sometimes when you have separate, when you separate those two jobs, especially in a music heavy musical, you kind of see where the director and choreographer pass the baton mm. off to each other. Um, and obviously in like collaborations that have a lot of history, not that that has to be the rule, but um, it from the director's seat, it often feels easier because I know how I want things to move to, to just do both roles. But I definitely consider myself director 
first. So those first couple gigs you got, were they more directing or choreography? They were almost exclusively choreography for a really long time. Um, and then I, uh, you know, like I said, I like that job, but to me it has always been something that I um, have done to support. It's like one of the tools I have in my toolbox as a director. It's not the thing that I want to be doing um, predominantly. And so I just kind of took a, a career risk at a certain moment and said I wasn't going to take choreography jobs anymore. Um, and, you know, there, there was a moment where the directing jobs that I got, I mean, and I think I'm even still in this moment, I, I had kind of worked to a place where I could choreograph at a certain tier. And I knew that when I stopped taking those jobs and said, no, what I actually am as a director, I would start a little bit below, but I wanted to make that shift so that I didn't become, um, you know, kind of hold into this job that never felt like where I wanted to lead. Hmm. Hmm. So, so talk to us about the, the process of getting those first few gigs and what, what that was like. You, you talked about having some toxic work thing. You don't have to go fully into that, but I'm, I am curious about with your, with your early career stuff, again, like, are you early career now? It's still question mark, but with your early career stuff, what, what made the things that were good, good, and what made the things bad, bad? And how did you start to decide, you know, where you wanted to work? Um, yeah, well, so, you know, one relationship that I have already mentioned that I was so lucky, really it was a mutual friend introduced us and I can, um, I can trace almost all of my artistic collaborations back to this initial meeting is Sam. Um, and that was such a good experience. And we were really work husband and wife for, I think kind of five years. I just really did everything with him. And you were um, his associate choreographer? I was his assistant at first and then his associate later on. Um, and I would honestly have to like read my resume to remember everything we did together. Cause we just, we did so many things back to back to back. Um, and he really has informed how I feel about the craft in so many ways. Um, you know, one of the things I don't want to speak for him, but I think that he would agree with this. One of the things he leads with as a choreographer, um, is an idea of, democracy for lack of a more specific word that that this idea of like only trained dancers can dance is bullshit and super limiting to the different bodies that get to be on stage um the different you know usually a trained dance is one of those things that you kind of have to start let me say this again western dance is one of those things that um to be kind of broadway caliber you've got to start when you're a tiny baby and not everybody has access to that. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Sam and Ani and the dance cartel, um, again, you know, read, read their website. I don't want to say what their mission is for them, but one of the things that they really do is try to explode that idea and say, 
like all bodies can dance. It's just maybe not the dance we're used to seeing. And so they really build movement on performers. Um, they don't come in having already made something and say, okay, can you do what I can do? They, um, they see what people can do and build the choreography from there. And that's just always going to create um, a stage where a more diverse stage. And like, don't get me wrong, the Rockettes are amazing. Like that, that being maybe the, the, an example of some of the least amount of diversity possible. Um, and that has its place. Um, but I really fell in love with this idea that uh, anybody can be a dancer if you are more creative about what theater dance looks like. Um, so, and, and also I would say that Sam is a big proponent of kindness. So I think that those, um, that that early relationship fostered inclusivity as a value, kindness as a value, um, prioritizing how does the room feel over how efficient is the room being. And I will say that with the asterisks that Sam is one of the best prepared people I've ever worked with who runs one of the most efficient rooms. Um, but like, we're never going to be cruel to people for the sake of efficiency. So that's a value that I have. Um, okay. What, what then the so negative on parts. the flip side, I'm curious what the, what the negative experiences were and how they, they taught you what to avoid. Um, the patriarchy, you know, like I've heard of it. Genuinely, I think people who had not earned the jobs they had mm. um, and therefore couldn't execute them. Uh, you know, I think like kind of a boys club that gave jobs to people who weren't qualified to have those jobs. And then those productions didn't go well. And then when that happened, we needed to freak out and blame someone. Mm -hmm. um, so there was like a lack of responsibility because there wasn't the skill to back up the job because of uh, nepotism and white supremacy I would say, <laughs> and patriarchy. Without, be without being super obvious about the experiences I'm talking about, that's what I would say. Yeah, no, that's, that's super valid. I, I wonder then the only way sort of to push through that is to be the one in power and say, you know, no, that's not how it's going to be in my room, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that anyone in any position can hold themselves to is like, do your fucking homework, be good at your job. And if you mess up, don't blame other people. Um, like, I think that those, anyone can hold their themselves responsible to that standard. And I think abuse in a room, at least the rooms I've been in that feel abusive, what starts to happen is when people at, it, at all levels, you know, like I think we've, I've seen directors do this. I've seen stage managers do this. I've seen the associate producer do this, feel insecure and like they don't have a handle on their job. They say, well, it's actually video's fault. Well, it's actually the sound, whatever, whatever, you know, you try to figure out, you panic and try to figure out whose fault it is. Um, and everybody makes mistakes. It's not that you can't make mistakes, but you can be prepared and you can also take responsibility for things when 
the fault is yours. When was, when, when did you realize, okay, I'm doing this. I have my dream job now. What was the first gig where second grade Chloe was like, it's happening? Um, probably when I did a BFA production of Spring Awakening, it was the first mm. time. So, so, you know, like on, on the one hand, still getting there, still very much getting there. You know, I'm not, um, I simultaneously, this is my professional job. This is how I pay my rent and my taxes. And also I am not like where I want to be in my career. I still have, um, a lot that I want to do, but, um, two years ago now I started getting on this kick and it was mostly in BFA programs. So like now kind of my next goal is that even I love directing in BFA programs, but I want to be doing more um, professional things, but I got to direct and choreograph a production of Spring Awakening. And then after that I had like my first off Broadway play and then I got to direct and choreograph street scene. And then there was just this kind of like run where I was, directing and choreographing a shit ton of musicals and that's really where I want to be. What was it about the Spring Awakening production in particular? For our listeners, this was Spring Awakening at Manhattan School of Music in 2018. Well, it was the first time that I had really gotten to do that role, um, just be the director and choreographer. I'd been, um, you know, in college I had directed, but since I had graduated in a professional capacity I had always been assistant or associate or you know whatever things like that the other thing is that um I guess I I should asterisk that um when you are an emerging or early career director you get access to a ton of readings workshops 29 hour that kind of stuff um so I had done that as a director but that's not Mm -hmm. actually directing directing like as a director your toolbox are lights sound set costumes also script also actors so um the first time as an adult that I had been and as a professional that I had been handed a production um was this version of Spring Awakening um and yeah it's just it's really what I love to do productions yeah. I think everyone, I think like all directors and writers too would say that, right? Like it's great to do all these readings. And I think that's bread and butter for a lot of people just because they're more, they happen more often, but you really want to do a production. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting though. I think you, you say it's not directing. I think there is a lot of that you could have shown me that you can do with the 29 hour reading and things that I've seen and in the ones that we've done together with Medusa. Um, do you, do you still take joy in that craft or is it just a means to an end? What I mean is that it's not your full palette as a storyteller. Totally, totally. So I think like, I guess there are some, I mean, I don't know, you're a writer of theater. So tell me, but I, I feel like, um, if, if actors are singing and acting your work, maybe you're not in a production, but like that is your toolbox. Whereas I feel like I don't get to actually access my whole toolbox um, unless I am in a production. And, you know, I think this is something that's also maybe while I, while I won't work much in the American theater, we'll see, fingers crossed. Um, but I, 
I really think that one of the, uh, maybe digging my own grave here, but I really disagree with the American model of serving the playwright, which huh. is not to say that I don't also think you should do that. But I think that American theater gets so text driven that it can forget that the medium is not a book. Like we aren't, the text is incredibly important. Of course it's important. But I think that in American, in the American theater, um, we weigh it so over all of the other elements that are also there to tell the story that um, to me, I, I see a lot of theater and I'm like, I don't understand why that's not TV or why is that theatrical? It, that's not theatrical. And when I think about the productions in the past 10 years that I've seen that I love that stay with me, the thing they have in common is this hyper sense of theatricality, be it Comet or Here Lies Love or the David Comer Our Town or there is something about them that feels 360, that feels like you words. You have to be there, like present, yeah. You have to be there. And I think that when we focus just on words, 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 again, which are really important. <laughs> Um, and I and I think you can attest that I really love digging into dramaturgy is, and stuff. Yeah, this is an amazing thing to be saying to the playwright whose work you're directing. So, <laughs> well, but but we can sidebar that. This is this I is my I other know, job. I know it's a bold it's a bold choice, right? <laughs> but I think you will eventually be glad for your production that that there is something that feels. I mean, I don't know. Your show is about Greece. That like the roots of what we are as theater. It's something that's happening around you set is super important set isn't like the flat backdrop that you're talking words in front of i want a theatrical experience where i feel like i am in the middle of something something is happening to me and around me all of my senses are involved there's a compelling reason why i'm not watching this on netflix in bed um and i don't i don't think we hold ourselves to that standard as an industry as much as we should. And my diagnosis of that is um, that we don't approach the, I like to say that instead of supporting the text, we're supporting the story. And then all the elements are held accountable equally to telling that story. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I think my diagnosis would be that a lot of those playwrights want to be writing for Netflix and would actually rather be writing for Netflix. And I get, I get that, I get that desire, like, come on, I don't blame you. That, that's, a, that's a paycheck and playwriting does not give you those. You know, being in a writer's room is probably what a lot of people aspire to. But I, I absolutely agree with you that it has to be a lived in experience. And I, you know, I think we all crave it and probably anyone listening to this podcast craves it. Um, more than anything right now because we're we're inundated with the content from your hbo's and your netflix's and whatnot but i think there's going to be such a huge demand for live theater god i hope when we get back that's my hope i yeah i think so too i mean i feel like every fucking meeting i was in before this happened there was kind of this this understanding that we as theater makers were having to apologize that people had to put pants on you know yeah. 
And <laughs> I feel like let's do the opposite. Like let's, we have to, but we are going to have to apologize that they put pants on if they put pants on to go see Netflix. Yeah. Like you have to give them something that they cannot see at their house. And getting dressed up is a part of that. You know, I, I also am not someone who's like, I, I love getting dressed up always, but um, I'm not someone who's like, ha, and these tourists in their shorts at the theater, like whatever, where would you want at the theater? But I think a little bit, if you build it, they will come, right? Like, make something that feels like an experience, like something that you want to get dressed up for that makes you want to leave the house. And I, I think we're all, this quarantine has really highlighted that is that is something that as humans, we really fucking crave. Um, but then if we get people to do that, I think that our contract with the audience is greater and we owe them more. Thanks for listening to Talk of the Hound. That was Chloe Treat. You can go to chloe-treat.com to see more of her work. We'll see you next time.